And at just about 11 o'clock, you are listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. I'll be back with you all in just a few minutes.
All righty, welcome to the program, everybody. Good evening to you. Good morning, if it's morning. Good day. Whoever you are, wherever and whenever you might be listening to this show, welcome to the program. It is Radio Orbit, where we investigate the cutting edges in science and technology and nature and art and music and medicine. Sometimes it can get strange and unusual. It's always interesting, though, and usually pretty cool. You're listening to it Monday, August 3rd, 2020. Hope things are good for you and you're enjoying the evening. It's a lovely Monday night here in mid-Missouri. The moon is not quite full, but it was a day or so ago. And now Luna's getting slimmer by the second, but still quite a large moon out there. Lovely night. Another good night to snuggle up and listen to Radio Orbit, I guess. Um, The moon, I'm probably not going to do space weather tonight because we've got an interview that's going to take up most of the show. But, uh, uh, you know, take a look out at the moon tonight. It's beautiful. You'll get some great views of Venus and Jupiter as well in the in the vicinity of the moon and if you're lucky you can see comet neowise it might be a little bit late by now but uh, earlier in the evening some beautiful stargazing all right so anyway never hurts to go out and take a look around right wherever you are situational awareness as they say you know (laughs) all right uh regardless it's nice to be with you on this summer night glad you joined me we'll take care of a little obligation stuff quick and then uh, on to the show all right Let me quickly say thank you to the remarkable KOPN staff and crew that keep this station rocking and rolling, both on the air and off, 24-7, 365, a truly awesome group of people that make it happen up here at the Mighty Fine 89. On Mondays, Woody gets it rolling with traditional classic country and Ameripolitan music from 3 to 6 p.m. now with the real deal country show, More Country Than Ever. Woody rocking out today, as usual, playing some great country songs for us all afternoon. I love that show. One of my favorites here on KOPN. And uh, the tech radio guys take over at 6 o'clock, keeping us up to snuff on the wild and wacky world of high technology. Kelvin working it, as the huge on jazz plus blues equals rabbit hole navigation. And just concluding, new wave radio theater, Arcadia, I'm sorry we uh, lost the last couple of minutes of that. The computer crashed and wasn't enough time to get it rebooted and, uh, and finish that off for you. Talk about a cliffhanger, huh? Well, I apologize for that. And uh, if you uh, like it, you can go to L.A. Theater Works and uh, look up Arcadia there. And if you're really dying to hear the end of that play, you can, you can hear it online for, uh, for free, okay? Apologize for the technical difficulty, but we got things back in order here, and I'm glad we got it rolling tonight. Um, yeah, good music, good talk, good news. 89.5 on the dial and streaming all around this wacky world at www.kopn.org. It's your imagination station, KOPN Columbia. Big thank you to... All the listeners and people that are participating on the website and in the forum, I appreciate all the feedback, email and Twitter, Instagram, whatever. I sure appreciate it and uh, keep it up. It's nice to hear from people out there and I always want people to know that uh, I'm always open to it. You know, feel free to message me whether it's a potential guest that you might have in mind or maybe a topic that you'd like to hear covered or maybe you've got a musical artist that you'd like to share or maybe you are an artist of some sort and you want to send some poetry or some artwork or something. Anyway, love to hear that stuff, love to see it and love to share it with other people, okay? All right, last week, um, the soundtrack from Lin-Manuel Miranda's wonderful musical Hamilton, a little out of character for Radio Orbit, but 
uh, it usually costs a lot to see Hamilton. <laughs> and, uh, and it's such a remarkable production that I thought that I'd share at least the audio experience uh, with the listeners from the soundtrack. And, and the soundtrack to the, uh, to the play is, is essentially the play, of course, because it's a musical. And uh, I thought it actually came through pretty good on the radio. And I was really impressed by the, by, by the play, which I didn't see uh, at the theater. I've actually seen the, uh, the movie version, which is really just filmed on the stage. But it's great. And it's, uh, it's a worthy look at American history uh, with some modern language. But they do a real good job of telling the story of some of the founding fathers, including Alexander Hamilton. So, uh, yeah, last week. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, if you missed it, it's on the web and available in the archives at my website at mikehagan.com. All right. You can go to the archives there for the show and all the previous shows are there. And there's some music archives as well if you're interested in some of the uh, music that you hear on the program. And one last thing, you might also get on the web and uh, go to the Radio Orbit Forum. If you uh, go to my website, there's a little menu, actually a quite large menu on the left-hand side of the main page there. And if you just click on the button that says Radio Orbit Forum, that'll take you over to the to the chat room, uh, well, to the forum, actually, and there's a chat room there as well. But uh, it's just a, a subreddit for Radio Orbit where I post stories and uh, comments and questions and lots of interesting things there, along with many other people. I think there are some 300 or so members over at the forum now, so I appreciate the, the new uh, group of folks that have showed up over the last week or two. And, yeah, it's a great way to kind of communicate with like-minded folks or, or not, um, but certainly a place where there's a lot of information being shared. And I use it as an archive for interesting stories that I find out there on the Internet. If I find something that, <clears throat> that I find enlightening or funny or cool or interesting or whatever, I just post it up on the forum. And that way, for me, it's an archive. Even if I don't get a chance to read it, it's up there for later. And oftentimes I'll just scroll through and, and see what uh, other people have posted as well. So anyway... Uh, the Radio Orbit Forum, easy to get to once again from the website, okay? All right, uh, tonight I am excited to have my friend Jonathan Zapp on the air with us for the evening. John is a frequent and favorite guest here on Radio Orbit and certainly no stranger to the program. I always enjoy our conversations and I'm real excited about the topic and the material that we're going to cover tonight. We'll do that in just a few minutes. If you want to get a leg up, you can check out Jonathan's website at zaporacle.com. That's Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zaporacle.com. Or you can link there directly from my site at mikehagan.com. All right? Okay, uh, for, uh, for the tunes tonight, we're hearing some cool songs from a new band. Well, actually, they're not a new band. They're a new band for me, uh, at least. Uh, they're called Skin Shape. And we started the show off with a tune called Summer. I'm going to play another one from Skin Shape here. I'll get my act together and we'll come back and, uh, and do it up with Mr. Jonathan Zapp in just a few minutes, okay? It's Mike and Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. And this one is called Inside.
listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Yes, it's true. You are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and my name is Mike Hagan. My guest this evening is Mr. Jonathan Zapp. John is a frequent guest on the program and someone who I'm always happy to talk to. He's an author. He's a wonderful video producer. And he's a really interesting fellow who knows a lot about a lot of things, including Jungian psychology and a little bit about how the mind works. And we're going to get right to John now and say, Jonathan, welcome back to the program. I'm so glad you're here. Great to be back. I love Radio Orbit. Thank you, sir. All right. What's happening in Colorado this evening, John? Doing okay? Things seem to be all quiet here on the uh, the Western Front. <laughs> no pun intended. Okay. Well, uh, I am going to uh, forego the sort of introductory stuff. If people are interested in your background, uh, there are plenty of Radio Orbit programs in the archives that they can learn a little bit more about your background. In fact, um, our most recent program was in December of 2019. In fact, it was sort of a New Year's show, and I guess we had no idea what uh, we were really in store for at that time. But 2020, right. 2020 has been certainly a rabbit hole of sorts, and um, uh, I, I think that's going to be uh, part of the part of the conversation. In fact, a big chunk of it tonight, we're going to talk about something that John calls rabbit hole navigation. But I will mention his website once again, real fast. If you're interested, you can check him out on the web at Zap Oracle. Dot com. That's Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zaporacle.com, and you can connect there from my site as well. So, all right, so Jonathan, you uh, uh, have uh, come up with this term. It's called rabbit hole navigation. You actually produced a very interesting video uh, with the same uh, material, I don't know, a few years back maybe. I'm not sure exactly when, but I found it fascinating, and I would like to talk about that stuff with you. Okay, great. And again, in case people are want to see the videos, it's actually a little playlist of three videos, I think. Yes. Um, and um, it's my my YouTube channel is Zap Oracle, and uh, they're called Skills for Rabbit Hole Navigation. Um, the subtitles in the Age of Metamorphosis, and the, there's one that's set in Meow Wolf, and then there's one that's set in my house, and then there's another one that's like a fireside chat with no just a slideshow of a few images of me in front of a fireplace. And um, <clears throat> just in case people want to follow up on uh, my rabbit hole navigation ideas. All right. Well, they're all very interesting and I think worthy of, uh, worthy of a watch. So uh, before we get too deeply into it, let's do a little bit of definition. The term rabbit hole, uh, do you know where it originated and, and, and why, that's the, why that's a term that now we use and how do we use it? Well, I assume that rabbit hole, um, as we use it, um, begins with Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And and um, w which is a cool place for it to begin because uh, it's a work of fantasy fiction, and and I also write fantasy fiction, and so it, it's it's sort of a um, interesting in multiple senses because it, it it's it's a place that came out of the imaginal at least in the meaning that it has for us and in how it, it um, functions in Alice in Wonderland, which is 
not the way a rabbit hole that an actual rabbit would dig out of the ground would function. <laughs> has a whole lot more novelty than that. Mm. So to define a rabbit hole um, is a little bit is a rabbit hole in itself in that, that it's a, um, a somewhat undefinable landscape. So if you think about what wouldn't be a rabbit hole, if I wanted to drive from Boulder, Colorado, where I live, to Denver, mm-hmm. assuming nothing goes wrong or there isn't you know, an earthquake or something while I'm driving, <laughs> right. that's, that's not a rabbit hole because it's a very clear, like, linear route. Like, I can, you know, the GPS can guide me or, you know, I can just follow road signs. And it's a known and, path, uh, a familiar, very, a familiar right, route. Right, exactly. Okay. It's highly defined. Um, and lacking in subjectivity, lacking in like, you know, if, if, if it starts to seem subjective and like I'm not sure, you know, if I'm the subject or the object, you know, I better pull off to the side of the road and stop driving because I'm, I'm not in the right state of mind for driving to Denver. Um, when you enter a rabbit hole, however, um, you, you just like Alice entering the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland, you, you, you are likely to lose your grounding. Um, um, the, the ordinary reality definitions no longer seem to apply as well. It's, it's, a, it's a liminal, can be a liminal place, sort of between and betwixt an interdimensional space. Jonathan, what, and, what, what was that uh, word? Strange. Pardon me, what was that word you just used? Did you say luminal um, or li- lim- liminal? Liminal. L I M I N A L. And liminal is an interesting word. I mean, it just means sort of something is between and betwixt. Hmm. And, and it's a very interesting concept, like, like the, the, the liminal times of the day are dusk and dawn, where you're between the night world and the day world. Yes. And those are seen as propitious times to meditate or mm. to do magical ceremonies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But other examples of liminality would be, say, a person of uncertain sexual orientation, mm. a, an undocumented worker or somebody whose immigration status is unclear, um, somebody who's... Um, um, in court proceedings that are yet to be decided, uh, yeah. someone with an uncertain <clears throat> medical diagnosis. Um, what about uh, something hip- like hypnagogia or something like that when exactly. you're coming in and out of sleep? Exactly. Those are the ne- ones I was going to mention that next, the hypnagogic and the hypnopompic states, mm-hmm. you know, between waking and, 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 and dreaming mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. sleeping. Um, so in liminal states, things are less defined because you're, you're kind of at the edge between dimensions or between zones. And so you're in this kind of interzone. Um, and I think that was a William Burroughs term. And uh, things are not so fully formed. And um, strange things can happen. And, in, and it's more dynamic, more change is possible. Mm. And when you're in a, a fully form, more fully formed world, like the driving the highway, you know, between... Older in Denver. Okay. All right. Um, when we when we find ourselves in a rabbit hole situation, uh, a situation that isn't so well defined, are are those things uh, purposefully uh, brought about, or do they happen by accident, or are we forced into them sometimes, or is it sort of a a grab bag of the, the, those types of things? <clears throat> well, definitely. The grab bag. I mean, it's definitely all of the above, of course, because you could be forced into it. You could be, you know, you know, uh, somebody in the 1950s who the CIA is mm. given acid to as part of their, you know, experiments. Mm-hmm. That would be you'd get forced into a rabbit hole. Um, in that example, you could 
voluntarily choose. You could take an hallucinogen or, or try and have a lucid dream or something like that, mm-hmm. or um, try and um, um, meditate in an imaginative sense, <clears throat> not in an emptying the mind kind of sense. And uh, I forget what other possibilities you mentioned, but all of them would would um, um, put you in rabbit holes in different cases for sure. I was thinking about when a, a young woman or man enters the service, like to go fight a war or something, that that, that would be sort of a, a purposeful introduction of yourself into a rabbit hole. In other words, you you know you have no idea what you're in for. You don't know anything about fighting. You say, well, I got to go fight and learn how to be a soldier or something. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's also because for many um, people, going into the military functions is a rite of initiation, Mm, mm. uh, which we don't have so much in our culture. So people will will seek those out in helpful or unhelpful ways. I remember there was an ad for the Army, um, probably in the very early 90s or late 80s. and It just shows like a young man with a kind of like blank expression on his face, Maybe he has a shirt off, and he's just like holding the uniform in his hands, and he has a crew cut. Mm-hmm. And the the headline of the ad just says "green," hmm. as if he's just been like newly oh. made, mm. you know. And mm. everything is fresh, and it's like springtime. So, it, you 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 go to the army, and your your old identity is stripped away. You know, your your hairstyle and your mm. ordinary civilian clothes are taken away, right. and and now you're going to enter. Um, a rabbit hole, and you know that rabbit hole can be like full metal jacket. Mm. You know when you see the person going through basic training, and then they they're they're sent to Vietnam, or um, what was the movie with uh, Charlie Sheen? That was a great military oh, uh, rabbit. Uh, platoon. Platoon, exactly. My I mean, gosh, that's, what, what what a great rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, war movie that is. Mm. <clears throat> um, but it can also be a rabbit hole from which you never fully recover. Um, so, for example, my, my dad, who most of World War II, he spent in an underground laboratory working on infectious diseases, which gives me some sympathy to some of the abused infectious disease experts in our present uh, pandemic. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but then just near the end of the war, um, he got sent over um, to be part of D-Day as a medic. And, um, and, and experience, you know, he was the only person he knew in World War II to survive D-Day and, and just had absolutely horrific experiences that he wouldn't talk about and that required him being hospitalized for a period of time after the war. And then he basically had lifelong, very high-functioning person, but he had lifelong PTSD symptoms that continued even into his 90s wow. where... There'd be these episodes where it seems like he was, you know, fighting off invisible adversaries or was somehow like, you know, as if under the surface of his consciousness, um, the, the horrors of that rabbit hole were like still looping in the background or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> that, that's rabbit holes can be quite dangerous. Um, you know, uh, with the association with, with Alice in Wonderland, it sounds like a fun, trippy place, but um, but just like somebody who takes 100 tabs of acid and ends up permafried, mm. not everybody um, survives their intact, their encounter with rabbit holes, depending on what they are. Okay. All right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the individual life as rabbit hole. In other words... Um, None of us really know the future, and certainly as children, we look at the world in a much more 
imaginative fascination sort of uh, viewpoint. Um, but life is an unknown. The future is unknown. And in many ways, it, it feels like just being alive in the world is a rabbit hole. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And in, 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 in the video, I make a case that uh, rabbit hole navigator is just a, um, an alternative definition of what a human being is. Mm. I mean, just think about it. We, you know, we, we're living in a womb in this wet, dark world, and then we're thrust through a birth canal. That almost seems like a rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. And and then we just have an, you know, uh, a whole series of shocking experiences um, called a human life until we enter another event horizon or portal called death, after which, you know, even more fantastical things may happen. And, and not only that, um, anybody, I'm assuming that most of the audience are like me uh, and you, social mammals. Mm-hmm. And if you're a mammal, um, you, you know, within 24 hours, certainly within 72 hours, you're going to enter an idioplastic, that is a thought responsive matrix where the physics will be uh, quite different and things will be quite surrealized, called the dream time. Mm. And so that's a rabbit hole that we... Um, and it is a neurological, biological necessity that we must enter for a substantial period of our lifespan. Of our lives, yeah, yeah. Do they know anything, John, as a side note, about how much time we spend in, I mean, I know, you know, average sleep time, but what about how much time we actually spend dreaming, like REM state, that type of thing? Has that been studied, um, I imagine? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think the figure that I remember is about 30 to 35% of the time. And um, sometimes I've found that I've, I've been able to sleep less than average. I don't set an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a hunch that it, I had, had a hunch for a long time it was because I somehow developed an ability to have a higher percentage of REM sleep. And then I was actually part of a sleep study at Colorado University huh. where they you know, have you hooked up to you know, 80 electrodes or something. Yeah. And they actually confirmed that, that, yeah, you have a very high percentage of REM sleep. No kidding. Mm-hmm. I guess that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> no, no, I, I just feel like I've got a lot going to. on. I experience a lot of time density, too. But they say mm-hmm. that also, you know, children have a, probably have a higher percentage of mm-hmm. REM sleep because there's just a lot a lot of things are new for them or something, hmm. um, perhaps. Okay. All right. So so back to life, though, as, as, as our own individual rabbit holes. Okay. Um, well, you know... Um, I don't know about your life, but, but my life involves a lot of high strangeness. And, and if you're incarnating in 2020, um, even if you're trying to have a mundane life, it's, it's pretty hard to do because, I mean, look at what's going on right now. We have the, the you know, but people thought it was weird when Ronald Reagan became president. This movie actor is president. I mean, yeah. who would have thought? And, and now we have this sort of, you know, a failed casino operator, you know, a person who seemed like a caricature of a human being for, to me going back to the early 80s because I'm from New York City, mm-hmm. same as Trump, yeah. um, Bronx to his Queens. Yeah. And, um, yeah. <clears throat> um, and, and for him to be president is just such a surreal thing. In fact, I wrote something called take the red pill, you know, why the Trumpocalypse reveals that we live in a simulated um, matrix or something like that. Uh-huh. People can find that on my website. I've got a whole uh, about 20 articles on, on Trump. Um, and then 
throw throw onto that a global pandemic. And by the way, the fantasy epic that I've been writing since, or been trying to write since 1978, if you can believe that. Which is called Parallel Journeys, I believe. Parallel Journeys. Yes, Parallel Journeys. 2013 begins with a global pandemic. No kidding. Characters living in social isolation. So, Mm -hmm. so, and now it's turned out to be the perfect zone for me to uh, finish the novel. All right, so let's uh, quickly mention that. Jonathan has a book that he's hopefully going to release sometime soon. It's called Parallel Journeys. You've been working on it for seven or eight years, John? No, I've been working on it. Well, the idea for it was conceived in 1978. Wow. The same year when I was 20 years old that I discovered the singularity archetype. Um, Now, the first, but I don't think I I didn't immediately start writing it, but the the earliest versions that have characters in common and, and, and so forth with it, begin in the 80s um so it's been a long time wow i mean i'm not like a life proud of that longevity i'm more like (laughs) frustrated i wrote about this in a something i wrote about creativity called the path of the numinous um living and working with a creative muse because i've been frustrated for 44 years in that the most desirable form of creativity and participation mystique experience for me you know more intense than almost all life experiences have been in the context of, of writing this work, but it's kind of like an interdimensional rabbit hole, and I don't con- can't control the openings or closings past a certain point. So hmm. there have been huge epochs of my life where um, trying to experimentally write parallel journeys then led me into something else. I mean, the one thing that I'm gr- quite grateful for is that the wells never dry. Like, you know, the, the, the muse is always pulling me somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I would keep wanting it to bring me back to parallel journeys, but it would be like, no, you're doing this now, mm. and that kind of thing. But, but since 2013, I've had the longest periods of where I've been able to work on it I see. Uh, continuously. Okay. Yeah, but with, 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 with an interruption that started on um, <clears throat> December 3rd of 2017, um, when I did like a little focus group and read the first chapter and realized from the feedback that there were kind of fatal flaws in the structure that I had to fix. And then um, what what happened was the next day I had like a five-hour depression because it felt like I had a superpower that was disconfirmed. I thought I was writing the final journey journal uh, version of it, and then it felt like I may probably never be able to write this, and I'm mm. probably fatally flawed as a fantasy writer in general. And then um, that night... And I almost always write in the morning. In fact, it's ideal for me to get up pre-dawn, but mm-hmm. I, I was so despondent that I just decided to write in my journal that night. And immediately, one of my two interdimensional companions stepped forward, and there were just like page after page of like fascinating new insights that I'd never heard before, like what time is like in a you know, afterlife dimension and things like that. <clears throat> so um, what I found was that... Um, I was being, for the next two years approximately, um, well, really since April 6th of 2020, when I resumed work on Parallel Journeys, um, I was in my, what I called my rabbit hole writing um, years, a couple of years or whatever, um, where I would just show up, um, you know, in my study at the same time every morning, and I usually would have no idea where I was going to be pulled, and I would often wake up feeling, you know, grumpy and feeling my, you know, late middle age and all that kind of stuff. And feel like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, just everything feels mundane. But then pretty much as soon as I would like turn on the computer, um, I would just get sucked right into something. 
And um, so I've written thousands and thousands of pages, um, and, but there are definitely themes. It's not like it's, you know, something completely different every day. Um, but it's been an amazing period. Um, but it was also a very ego-challenging period because, um, you know, my supervisory ego would be like, what, what the hell are you doing? This is just like some morbid hobby. Like you're just writing all this stuff that can't possibly be published, you know, uh, all of that kind of thing. But at the same time, all these – I would learn so much and so many interesting mystical experiences happened, and I knew I just had to go with it. And then um, I had some little forays into parallel journeys. But then on April 6th, you know, um, a couple of weeks into the quarantine and after having like done all a bunch of different quarantine tasks with the house and stuff like that, um, it was just the right time again. And um, it's been the right time since then. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're making progress on it. Yeah, fantastic. No, it's great that you're making progress for me. I, I wanted to ask a question about uh, something that I've sort of observed in my own life as with regard to the rabbit hole. I mean, I feel the same way that, that you know, my life has been a series of certainly unexpected events among expected events. I mean, you have sort of the mundane, but then you have the ultra uh, or, the, or the exceptional that, that, that shows up every so often. But what I wanted to ask you about is that... Uh, the experience of looking backward and now that I'm getting a little bit older, I'm in my mid fifties now. And I look back at my life and, and it seems like there's some, some sort of order to it. Uh, almost, I hate to say it, but it's almost literary. It's like, it, it reminds me that, that, that somebody wrote it and that there was an editor involved or something. Um, because events that happen, uh, uh, when they happen, they may not seem to be particularly uh, important or relevant or, 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 I don't know, something special. But then because of the way that the thing moves forward, those events, by looking backward in hindsight, seem to have some sort of uh, sense that they make. It's like, wow, I, I, you know, that event that happened when I was 13 years old, I didn't realize how much uh, that really did affect these things that happened further on down the line. And it seems like sort of a, like a story. Well, nothing, no observation you could possibly have made would be so pleasing to me because one of my great principles is that, um, is that story structure parallels life structure Mm -hmm. and that, um, understanding story structure and applying principles of story structure is the, is the best, both the best explanatory tool of understanding a human life and also um, uh, the greatest tool to have a more magical um, and successful human life. Hmm. And so, so first of all, um, it shouldn't be completely surprising because classic story structure is, uh, is something that, that grows naturally, um, organically out of, out of human lives hmm. and human culture. And yeah, that's why yeah. the elements of classic story structure um, are to be found in, in basically all cultures. Um, the, the, the classic example of a um, archetypal story structure, of course, is the hero cycle. Mm. So Joseph Campbell Joseph wrote Campbell. that famous book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Fantastic. Because, you know, the, the, the hero story, which is sort of a developmental arc that has a lot of roots in, you know, the classic 
classics of, of human development, you mm. know, where you have to like break free from the world, you know, and enter a rabbit hole or something, you know, you answer the call to adventure, yeah. but there could be refusal to answer it. Then, then you may encounter threshold guardians that are, you know, barring the way and, but then the helpful figures may come forward and so forth. And so I have found that, um, you know, if you look at your life as a story, um, and, and think about what to do in terms of what will make a better story, you're going to have a better life. And I apply it in all kinds of ways. And one of the things that I do that makes me unsuited for a lot of ordinary mundane social situations, especially something which I really don't like to do, small talk, is I've applied a rule from screenplay writing and playwriting where basically um, in every scene, something of high human value should be at stake. Hmm. So if you and I are talking about what the local sports team is doing, unless you or I are like on that sports team or have some, you know, you know, bet all our life savings on it or something, um, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like a very good story scene. Hmm. There's nothing, there's nothing at high enough stake. Hmm. Um, Whereas if, if you're telling me your dream and it has to do with, you know, your marriage that, you know, is on the rocks or something like that, well, then there's a lot at stake in that dream consultation, for example, or the conversation we're having. So I'm always interested if somebody wants to tell me about a big high stakes problem they have or something like that, I'm always interested. But if people want to have like an amateur philosophy conversation, you know, like, oh, what do you think about free will? You know, I'll give them about one minute and then like, you know, read Kierkegaard or something like, like, you know, there's nothing at stake here. It's just like amateur philosophy 101 or and, and most people consider talking about philosophical things an interesting subject of conversation. But the principles, the actors that are on that stage, hmm. remember what Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, all the men and women you know, merely, merely players. players. They each have their entrances and exits and so forth. And it's really quite true. What, what is your life but a succession of scenes? And so therefore, I want to, my life is a story, either beginning at birth and ending, seemingly ending at death, the story of this incarnation at least. And I want it to be a good story. So therefore, I don't want to have dialogue that's going nowhere or that's repetitious mm, yeah. or where nothing is at stake and this kind of thing. Yeah, I like it. So in a way, um, free will aside, we at least seem to be uh, in some control of our own story. Well, um, to, to some extent, yeah. Right, I mean, but, right. it, but it's sort of like if you walk onto a stage where there are other actors who are also, you know, it's one of, like, one of my Oracle cards. I have a free online Oracle on my website, zaporacle.com. And one of the, one of the um, cards is called the other stars, hmm. and so it, it, it talks about how you know we we are the star of our own movie, but it's easy to forget that other people are the stars of their movies, and then if you enter into a scene with another star, hmm. you know the the movies may conflict. Yes, because one person has one agenda or one set of reality definitions, and the other it, it's. You have to be a very expert rabbit hole navigator to get your movie to mesh with that of another star's movie. And so um, it's all a very complex and mysterious process. But as far as, you know, many things happen that we do control, 
Um, but then there are all kinds of other things going on in our story, like COVID-19 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the election of Donald Trump, that don't seem to be in our individual control past a certain point. You know, whether I wear a mask or not is in my control, but the fact that there's this pandemic mm. seems to be outside of my individual control. But I can extemporize based on this, uh, about, you know, what I'm, how I'm going to deal with it based on the fact that in the larger play that's going on, this is now... Um, become a major um, story factor, a major plot development. Right, right, right. And what, one thing that, that, that probably tempted me toward this whole story view of life is that something that's unusual about my life is an extreme thematic continuity. Hmm. Even though there are all these very strange and surreal aspects, um, I look back and I see how they were present all along. And mm-hmm. they just, you know, keep unfolding more and more. But it's, it's not like... Um, you know, once I was a baseball player and now I'm into brain surgery or something like that, there's mm. a tremendous the- thematic continuity going on. Will so you be- my life feels very storial to me. Can you share some of that theme or at least a, an, an insight into it? Sure. Well, one, one example, I mean, because to, to, to express the whole theme, we'll, we'll be here for a really long time. But um, one theme is interdimensional communication. Yes, we and talked so, about that um, in December. Yes. Right. And, and so uh, my first experience with that, I was maybe two or two and a half years old. Um, and I had a experience while I was asleep where ancestors, um, I, I just knew that they were, they were relatives. And one later when I saw a picture, I believed to be my um, paternal grandmother, a woman who died in World War II before I was born. His name was Augusta Zapp. And they told me, you know, a series of things about myself. And um, I woke my parents up, recited a couple of Hebrew pr- prayers I hadn't been exposed to, apparently. At what age? And, um, mm-hmm. At what age, John? Um, I'd say two or two and a half. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, really early. Um, and, uh, and so <clears throat> the, the theme of, of communicating with interdimension, interdimensional relationships mm. was, was part of that theme. Um, and a, a theme of um, rebellion from the human form was an implicit theme. Mm. And, and this, I think, is, is a theme that's going on in the collective. I call it, you know, the will toward the glorified body sometimes. Yes, where I agree with that. There's yes. part of us that wants to rebel from being in meat bodies. Mm, I agree. We see this everywhere in culture. Yes. So this is like another theme. And, but all of these themes have a, are sort of thematically related to each other. They're, they're sort of different facets of the same gem or something like that. Fantastic. All right. I think that's a good place for us to take a break. I had my next question was on, on, on my list that well maybe we can start off with after we take a breather here. But and we kind of started talking about it. So it's kind of a good place to stop. But uh, relationships, we were talking about when uh, the star of one story comes in contact or across the star from another story. And then we actually have a relationship between the two. And that's sort of a, a rabbit hole experience. Uh, uh, you have your own rabbit hole life. But then relationships with other people can can be like entering uh, additional rabbit holes. Can we talk about that when we come back? Absolutely. All right, John, it's great. Uh, we'll be back then with uh, Jonathan Zapp. You can find information about John on the web at zapporacle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E.com. And obviously, you can link over there from my site. Great to have John with us again tonight. He'll be with us for most of the program uh, till about 1.15 or 1.20 or so. And... Uh, 
We're going to take a break right now and come back with John in a few minutes. Thanks, John. Be back in a minute, okay? All right, everyone. Uh, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. This is a song by our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Skin Shape, and in honor of Zap Oracle, this song is called Oracolo. Thank you. 
right, that one's called Oracolo. Once again, Skin Shape. You're listening to it here. It's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, this program is supported in part by Pizza Tree Pizza. Pizza Tree offers pizza by the slice, specialty pies, and delivery. Pizza Tree is located at 909 Cherry Street. It is open 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day except Monday. More information available at pizzatreepizza.com or on Facebook. All right, back to the program here. It's Radio Orbit, Monday, August the 3rd. If you're just joining us, my guest this evening is Jonathan Zapp. You can find information about Jonathan on the web at zapporacle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E.com. The topic of our conversation tonight, rabbit hole navigation, life in the world as a trip into the unknown. And we've talked a little bit about our own personal lives being rabbit hole-ish. And now we're going to talk a little bit about relationships and how one rabbit hole can kind of meet another and and experience it together. Jonathan, thanks for sticking around. I'm glad you're with us tonight. Thank you so much. Uh, As I've told you many times, you're my favorite interviewer, so it's a a great blessing to be on Radio Orbit. That always means a lot to me. I sure appreciate it. And uh, yeah, okay, so rabbit hole navigation. Uh, We're talking about it tonight. Uh, Let's talk about relationships. Okay, now I'm going to suggest something uh, very controversial. Okay. Feel free to say no. Something that that almost any experienced radio host will almost never let you do, and for good reason, is to read anything aloud. Oh. However, I'm going to suggest reading aloud my, uh, if I I can read aloud my card called The Other Stars, my Zap Oracle card. I think I can read aloud a little better than average, and I think it's concise enough and poetic enough that it'll be worth the airtime. But that's up to you. Yes. Would you like to hear that? Please, yes. Okay. So um, this is Zap Oracle card 632 of 664. There's 664 cards? Yes. Okay. Um, It is all too easy to become the star of your movie and to forget that others are the stars of their movies. The same event may look very different in the context of your movie than it does in the movie of another star. We all too easily forget to respect the otherness of the other and expect stars to play the roles we have assigned to them. We want others to live inside of our movie. And when they act from their own movies, we point the finger of blame at them for being different than we imagined. Mm. To us, it seems obvious that they would be much better off playing the lovely supporting roles we assign for them. <laughs> we are easily offended when others go renegade, step off of our script, and begin extemporizing their own roles. It is flattering to recognize yourself as a star, but it is more humbling than many of us can take to recognize that others are also stars. And it begins with the quote, you know, uh, from Aleister Crowley, every man and woman a star. Mm. Of course, he's referring to the celestial stars, not the movie stars. Stars vary greatly in size, brightness, and where they are in their life cycle. It is important to recognize that each star is unique and the variations can be dramatic. It is also crucial to recognize that despite the differences, other stars are cosmic bodies of the same order of magnitude that you are. Mm. Each star has its own trajectory and inertia. Although we may constellate with other stars, each of us has an independent nuclear core. When it comes to the other star, our information is willfully incomplete. Usually, even if we live under the same roof, Mm. we haven't been there for most of the other star's movie. Since we've missed most of the other screen time, inevitably there are secrets about their movie that we don't know. 
the other also has secrets about their movie that they don't know. Hmm. We must respect both types of secrets. Even with our eyes fairly open, we are blind to much of the core identity of the other star. Relating to another star can be like entering a foreign movie where there are no subtitles, or entering a rabbit hole, we could add. Hmm. Interpenetrating with the other's movie, we find ourselves in a misty foreign culture where traditions and perceptions are quite different. We may do something that has benign intentions from inside our movie, but when it shows up in their movie, it appears as something highly offensive. Inevitably, there will be gaffes, moments when we say or do exactly the wrong thing in another star's movie. And, and you're, you're the parent of adolescent children, so you probably know this all too well. <laughs> Similarly, we find that other stars may often say or do exactly the wrong thing from within our movie. When dealing with a different culture, wide allowances must be made for differences in custom and perception. Hmm. It is not necessarily a bad thing that I have my own movie. I need to live by my own mythology and vision and life philosophy. But I must also respect that other stars have their movies based on their individualized mythologies, visions, and life philosophies. The feelings of the other star stars are as real as my feelings, though it often doesn't feel that way. I must live from my own movie but also be able to peer outside of it and recognize that flickering all around me are the movies of other stars. To work well with other stars, I must recognize the technicolor blind spot. The technicolor blind spot is the classic optical illusion that finds my movie more technicolor, high resolution, and widescreen than the movies of others. The technicolor blind spot makes it look like others would be happier and more alive if they lived in my movie rather than in their own. If I project my movie into the movie of another star, a third distorted movie is created with a confused melange of images imperfectly superimposed on other images. What I must do, and gently encourage other stars to do, is to project our movies in parallel. When two movies are projected in parallel with graceful precision, they may coalesce for a time into a dynamic third movie that unfolds and develops, enlivened by the extemporaneous collaboration of parallel stars. Wonderful. So, so that kind of you know, the, the idea of the the other as both a star and an and an alternate movie is um, another way of saying that the other is a rabbit hole, and and it has to be because first of all, um, I don't know what I was before I was born or mm. where I'm going after. I die. Me neither. Um, I, I may not remember the fantastic dreams that I had last night. Um, I am a rabbit hole even to myself. And another person is, is a, just that much more of an exotic mm. rabbit hole. And um, I, was, I was trying to you know, explain the weirdness of, of my life to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, not only is my life weirder than you think... <laughs> It's also weirder than I think, or that I can think. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Because if I could fully understand myself, if any of us could fully understand ourselves, we, we would know more than any human being that's ever lived, that's probably. Right. Yes, I agree. Oh, uh, well, it is uh, just top of the hour here, folks. Uh, you're listening to KOPN Columbia, eighty-nine point five FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. All right, John. Um, the reading that you just did from your Oracle card, the first thing that popped out at me was the idea that different uh, 
stars, different individual humans can experience the same event in a different way. And right. I think this is so Not interesting. Not just can, but they, but they, they must. Do, yeah, they must, absolutely have to. And e- even if it's very similar... Uh, it's still not exactly the same, right? Because we we are we are all sort of the centers of our own universe, and nobody has the same perspective as you or me or anybody else because there's no way that they could. Uh, we we all have to have our own unique perspective. I th- I've thought at times that that was maybe like a different angle on the multiverse idea that it really is sort of a multiverse, but it's not. A, a billion different physical universes. It's it's seven billion different individuals that are experiencing their own multiverse in the sense that we all have sort of a different perspective. Right. I mean, in inside um, of each of us. I mean, first of all, um, even what I experience with my physical senses um, is a, a time delayed neurological reconstruction. It's a, some sort of imperfect simulacrum of the outside so-called physical world. Mm. Um, but it's also merely a cultural prejudice to say that the, the worlds that exist in the individualized worlds, the movies that exist inside of us, are um, less physical than the outside worlds. Because the outside worlds, we know from physics, isn't all that physical to begin with. <laughs> right, right. And there's some there. even suggest no, it may all be a simulation. There's no there the there. The right? dreams made of. <laughs> right. You know, I, I pointed this out in a recent talk that, you know, if you, you took all 7 billion of us and you just took out all the empty space in all of our atoms, all 7 billion of us would fit into a sugar cube. Isn't it crazy? So people who are a person who is one seven billionth of a sugar cube should be careful about who they're calling non-physical. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> you know, the, these worlds inside of us, um, they, they may be... Um, more real um, than what's outside of us, because it depends on where, where you know, because there, there are some who say that the outside physical world, there's an MIT physicist who just came out with an excellent book, he'd be a great guest for your show, called The Case Against Reality. And um, was his name Hoffman? Is it, is it Hoffman? Was it, is that his last name? Um, I have to look up his name. I meant to look that up because I had a feeling I was going to refer to him, but um, um but the book just came out. He's an MIT physicist, or I believe. And, um, and basically, you know, you could also, like, look up on YouTube, um, Space Time is Doomed. So a search that he suggests doing. Because okay. so many physicists now are saying that the only way that we can um, possibly unify relativity and quantum mechanics is we have to get rid of the idea of space-time. Hmm. That space-time is just sort of a construct of the human mind. It's, it doesn't actually exist. And so when we, when we have physicists starting to say things like that, then um, to say that our inner worlds are the unreal versus the outer physical world, mm. they're reversing that. And they're saying that actually consciousness is the more fundamental thing and that consciousness then constructs space and time mm. in order to have an experience. That's one of fascinating hypothesis. Yeah, it's crazy. That's one that I, I I always have a hard time getting my head around um around deep time when it when it comes to this type of idea. I have a where I get stuck is 
like the sun, for example, I think that the sun had to exist before the earth and certainly before conscious creatures existed on the earth. And so I have a hard time giving yeah, giving, giving he, my consciousness credit. Right, he addresses that specific example, I believe. Does he? I'm very it's interested in it. It's been a few it. months since I've read the book. Uh-huh. But, um, but, you know, I heard somebody else who was a, a scientist um, uh, speaking on the radio earlier today and was saying, like, I've never met anybody who has existed anywhere but the now. Mm. We talk about the past and future, but have you ever met anybody who lived in any, loved a single second of their life in anything other than what was at that moment the now? Yeah, certainly not. Yeah. Um, and um, also, like, the other thing that, that's very elegant and powerful in this book um, is that he makes a case, and he's able, even able to, to make this mathematically. You might be better able to understand the math than I am, but um, where they were able to prove, it's claimed, that um, we did not evolve because people, some scientists would object to this idea that seems so solipsistic to them, that, you know, mm. outside reality is just a construct. And they'd say, like, right. yeah, but, you know, um, organisms need to be able to function in the real physical world. So, therefore, they would evolve senses that would, um, as accurately as possible, um, show to them what's really out there. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's not true, even though that sounds so intuitive and, and, and common sense that that must be true. Right. What he was able to show is that actually um, our, our senses do not did not evolve to perceive reality, but to perceive what he calls fitness payoffs or fitness rewards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for example, if you're, you're a monkey in the jungle, uh, say a banana is a fitness reward. And if you can see the color yellow and the color is green, you can, it will help you to distinguish mm. the, the, the banana. And the, the fitness rewards are like icons on a desktop. Right. If the monkey was seeing... So when I look at my desktop, for example... If I were to see what's really there, I would see these tiny voltage differences. Hmm. I wouldn't be able to comprehend what I was looking at. You know, if I see it, it's much better if I can see a folder on my desktop, even though it's an icon, it, it's going to allow me to manipulate the, the, the digital world of my desktop better. Hmm. Um, if, if the monkey were to see what's really there, well, he would see like quarks and empty space and like he'd be completely disoriented. Hmm. It is much better for him to see this useful icon, the banana, um, than what's really, in quotes, there. Mm. And so um, our, you, you survive in evolution to pass on your genes if you're able to successfully, um, if your senses and your perception is able to successfully coalesce these fitness reward icons mm. that, that take what's really there um, which would be quite confusing, and turn it into like a desktop icon, you know, that, oh, there's a mate, there's a fruit, there's a prey, you know, this kind of thing. Right, right. Interesting. All right, you just kind of blew my mind there, John. So let me uh, get back to it here. Um, okay. All right, so with with regard to relationships then, the the recognition uh, that another person is... In, in the middle of their own uh, their own story as well. If you can if you can actively consciously recognize that, then you can uh, 
perhaps have a collaborative experience where where you can share things of uh, the personal rabbit hole nature sure because it's just like you know the, the classic thing that actors will say is acting is reacting so a good actor is not just thinking about what they're supposed to say next they're listening attentively to what the other actor is saying so that they can simulate a spontaneous reaction to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, the op- so, so being a, um, a bad fellow actor in an ensemble, you know, which is what, our, what we live through in our, <clears throat> because we don't usually have a relationship with just one person, but with many, um, is to not just be a projector. A projector is somebody who's just projecting their movies into other people. Um, but to be a receptor. So if, if I'm a good listener, and if I'm carefully observing the other person, because people are, through their um, actions, um, constantly revealing things. It's just like, you know, if, you, if a, you know, I have a dog right now. It's the first dog I've ever had. Um, the dog performs all of its emotions with its body. Hmm. But by how by its body posture, it's saying everything about what it feels. If I'm able to correctly interpret that, yes, human beings do that too. Any any baby, you know, does that. But but at this phase of evolution, we are dissemblers, and we may try and hide our uh, what we're feeling inside, or smile even when we we don't feel like it. But then there are these like what poker players are able to observe these tells, you know, mm. we use different muscles for a contrived smile as compared uh-huh. to a right. genuine one and right. so forth. Right. But if I'm a good enough listener and if I'm some, some kind of like empath and stuff, um, and I'm, you know, observing another person carefully, I will be able to learn things about their movie because they're, they're constantly performing their movie with their actions. And so this way, then I can, I can more skillfully collaborate because I'm, now I'm, you know, an actor reactor, not just an actor projector that is like stepping on other people's lines and, you know, missing the, their cues and, and this kind of thing. Mm. So it's like a principle in the I Ching that, that Carol Anthony um, um, developed um, in a, a whole book that she wrote about relationships based on one hexagram, number 44, which is called Coming to Meet. So the idea is that the touchstone for human relationships in the I Ching is coming to meet halfway, which is a much more subtle and complex um, concept than it seems. Mm. So meeting halfway means, for example, well, meeting more than halfway might be, uh, I'm giving you unasked for advice. I'll be meeting more than halfway. I go to a party, see somebody I'm attracted to and immediately hit on them. That could, that would probably be meeting more than halfway. Mm -hmm. If I go to a party and I see somebody attracted to, but I'm a total wallflower and I don't even go up and try and start a conversation that would be meeting less than halfway. Yeah. Okay. But then let's say I start having, I go to a party and I start having a conversation with another star. Um, now the halfway point is, is a dynamic ever shifting thing. You know, did that person pause just to take a breath or are they ready for me to deliver one of my lines? Um, you know, let me wait another beat and find out. Um, and through, I'm going to examine their body language and, you know, whether their eyes are dilated or not to see whether they're receptive or whether the thing that I'm saying is causing resistance. So if I'm skillfully following the principles of hexagram 44 meeting halfway, I'm ready to retreat the moment I'm creating resistance and I'm ready to advance 
if they show me through their body language, their words, whatever, mm. that they are receptive. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's a very delicate dance, um, but it's also much more ethical to follow this principle of, of meeting halfway. And it means, for example, that if somebody does something that is a huge transgression from the perspective of our movie or from universal ethics, mm-hmm. then we lovingly withdraw energy from them mm-hmm. and, and, and this kind of thing. So it's, uh, there are a lot of principles um, of the, the rabbit hole navigation of relating to another star. Um, <clears throat> and we can spend our whole lifetime learning those and it but it's still a moment by moment struggle um and we're still constantly making mistakes wow i've got all kinds of stuff i've written about relationships and stuff but it's but it's an endless endlessly difficult thing like you know it's this live um you know improv theater that's (laughs) going on in our lives and we never get it exactly right wow okay Right. Almost never. Very good. I, great, uh, great explanation. Okay, we uh, we spoke a little bit earlier in the conversation about liminality, and I'd like to go back there for a few minutes and talk about uh, specifically the those states of consciousness in between sleeping and waking, um, and also perhaps the dream time that's in between those two states because you mentioned the dream uh the dream time is in and of of itself a rabbit hole that we uh as individuals experience at least every few days Mm -hmm. so um yeah so could you then please uh, review a little bit on liminality and about those those states uh, in between uh sleep and wake well it's it's this interzone and um, when you are sort of between dimensions, um, more possibilities pertain. So um, it's just like, for example, um, think about driving a car, and if it's daylight out, and I, I might put on Pink Floyd music or whatever, um, but my visual imagination is going to be somewhat limited because um, I'm, if, I'm, if it's a blazing you know, we have this glorious high-altitude lighting here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing such incredible surface texture. The specificity of stuff is coming at me. And there are so many cars, and I have to, like, keep track of them and all that kind of stuff. Right, and, you right. know, lights, you know, lighting up, warning light on the dashboard or whatever. <laughs> okay. So it's limiting my imagination. Now, mm. um, <clears throat> if I'm driving at night... Um, there's much less visual information coming in that leaves much more room for my imagination, but I also can't see much of anything except like what my headlamps are picking up if I'm driving at night. Mm. If I'm at dawn or dusk though, I'm, I'm at a kind of ideal window zone where I can see the outside world, but it's a bit muted. Mm. You see, so, so it's similarly, Um, if I'm in the dream time, then I'm, I'm living, unless it's a lucid dream, I'm living completely in the reality of that dream. And many dreams can, you know, just seem, seem nonsensical in reflection. A lot of them are not the big message dreams, you know, that the people bring for dream interpretation. You know, it's like somebody said, some comedian said, like, yeah, why was I, you know, last night, like, fixing go-karts with my ex-landlord and stuff like that? It's just like some absurd situation. Hmm. Um but but it has its own rules, and you know that's what you're doing. You're you're fixing go karts with your ex landlord for some odd reason, and then there's also the world of your bedroom or wherever you're sleeping um, before you're going to sleep, 
but between those, the, the, the reality of the bedroom is starting to get a little wobbly and mm. like oozy and melting. Yeah. And, and different images are starting to pop up. You're not quite thrown into one of those specific scenarios, but you're in a little bit of a kaleidoscopic place between and betwixt. And, and the same thing arising from, from the dream time, um, where, where you're in this interzone between dimensions. And in that place, you may actually have, if you um, are able to be conscious there, you may have more free will. You may have more... Um, ability to see something new because things are in a very dynamic place because they're, you know, there's a bleed through happening between dimensions. Hmm. Let me ask you a question about the actual dream state. Uh, and, and this may or may not be an, e an easy answer, but do all dreams, in your opinion, have some particular meaning or are some just like, you know, like Terrence used to talk about just casting a net out there into the into the the sea of mind and just never know what might might be picked up um i'm i'm more with the the net idea um because i think you know like the, it says in the jewish tradition an uninterpreted dream is like an unopened letter but that dramatically overstates the case for dream interpretation hmm. now i do dream interpretation with people I, I started doing it at festivals for people for free in 1995 the only reason why it works is because the, the dreams that people bring for dream interpretation are not just average dreams. They are like what you know Jung would call big dreams. Mm. They're the ones that like broke through the natural tendency to forget dreams as something like particularly memorable and mm. like having a message, right. and therefore they often can be interpreted. Uh -huh. But it's like if I were to say to you, um, um, "What did you do last Tuesday at 2:30 p.m.?" and interpret it for me. Well, a lot of it might not be subject to interpretation. Maybe you were having an argument with somebody in Home Depot about, you know, it's not something that gives itself to interpretation. But if I were to, and, and so I think a lot of what happens in dreams, dreams can serve many different purposes and many different functions and have many different sources. Because something we conventionally assume is that all dreams are, are created by our own psyche. Um, but people never really seem to examine, you know, that w whether any other explanation or source is possible. Like I've noticed that the dreams of somebody who's not very bright in their waking life can have all the complexity of a David Lynch movie with like double and triple entendres and layers of surreal s s symbolism. And it's all made up on the fly, hmm. which even David Lynch can't do in his waking personality. Right. So I think that many dreams... We assume that they're made by our psyche, but maybe they're made by our psyche sometimes interfacing with the processing power of the universal psyche. You know, um, and this is kind of like what Jung called the collective unconscious, mm. um, mm -hmm. for example. And so I think that we, we can't just assume that we uh, make up all dreams. So dreams come from many, may, may come from completely different sources. May, some may seem to come from the collective unconscious, while others seem to be just sort of like a part of our brain that's bored and is just like, you know, um, like a child, like mixing a bunch of weird things together and seeing what, what happens. And so, um, <clears throat> uh, so, so therefore, like, you know, after 60 years of dream interpretation, Jung couldn't make heads or tails out of most of his dreams. And I can't make heads or tails out of most of mine because I have high dream recall. So part of the, um, skill, I think, in interpreting. But many people who, like, teach dream interpretation, 
sort of have like this dreadful ideological certainty that like every dream is like divine and there to teach you something. And that's like, you know, and Jung was very careful to point out, do not relate to dreams as like the voice of God. But Mm. like, you know, every one of them that, you know, these dream interpreters has this like didactic approach where they're, they're all there to teach you. And they have like these formulaic things. Oh, you dreamt about this. You know, it means that. Right, right. Um, You know, you know, just like your argument at Home Depot you might be stretching things to turn that into a big interpretation. Mm. However, if I said, tell me about the most memorable thing that happened to you in, in a relationship in the last 10 years. Now, if you told me that story, well, that probably could be interpreted right. and be like, oh, well, you know, I learned never to trust that people are who I first thought they were or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a me- it's like a big dream. It's a memorable episode that's, mm. that's bursting with meanings. Mm-hmm. But a lot of other things um, are just sort of like experiences that are not meant to be interpreted. All right. All right. Very interesting. Okay. We uh, are close to another break here. I think let's do that now. Um, we'll come back and talk about phenomenology. Okay. And I'm sure that's a word that isn't really familiar for, uh, to a lot of people. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. And maybe we can get a little bit into skepticism as well, or true skepticism, as you like to call it. Excellent. All right. Jonathan Zapp is my guest tonight, everyone. You can find him on the web at Zapp Oracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, ZappOracle.com. You can link there directly from my site. And it's a very interesting website that John has put together. And it's been uh, a a long time. John, I remember when Zapp Oracle first kind of came into my my story. And it was back when Kent Stedman was still running – uh, cyberspaceorbit.com and I may have heard I, I don't know if I heard you on on Jeff Rentz's show or or, or, or a, another program somewhere I forget how you and I actually it first could have got been John Major Jenkins maybe that, it was through John us. that connected, connected us uh, but anyway I've I, I I was fascinated by the Oracle years ago it's probably been almost how long has Zap Oracle been up has it been 20 years I know it's close um I, I, I have a feeling 2004 sounds about right. Okay, so about 16 years. It happened years. on Halloween. I know it, it's described as documentation in the Oracle itself. It tells you the history of the date, but I know it was on Halloween Eve that it came into existence. It wasn't planned. It's just two computer wizards happened to decide to get together and call me on that night. Huh. Um, and that's when the Oracle... Um, came into being. Amazing. All right, so check that out, everyone. Uh, ZapOracle.com. It's an interesting website with a lot of cool information and links to all of John's videos and uh, uh, just a whole bunch. Of, no, it's, a, it's a rabbit hole in and of itself. So we'll come back with uh, Jonathan Zapp in just a few minutes. All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Jonathan Zapp is with me tonight. He'll be with us for another hour or so. We're going to hear one from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called skin shape and this is shimmer
All right, another lovely one there from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Skin Shape. And uh, Skin Shape is primarily the project of a British musician whose name is William Dory. Uh, and as you might be able to tell, it's inspired by a whole lot of different sort of styles, but in particular, maybe the 60s, 70s funk and some soul and a little psychedelic uh, influence, some African music, uh, even some reggae, I think I hear in there. But anyway, real cool stuff and uh, hope you're enjoying it tonight. I'll play a few more songs before we get to the bottom of the program here. All right. All right, it is uh, Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And, uh, yeah, shout out to my friend uh, Seth, uh, who I got a couple of people around town that I, that I go to for, for new music. And uh, a gentleman named Seth, I won't mention his last name just in case he doesn't want it said on the air, but he, he's a great source of uh, new music for me. And... Uh, and my buddy Jonesy does a, does a great job of it, too. So anyway, shout out to both those guys. I sure appreciate you guys turning me on to, to new stuff. All right. Um, so uh, we've got Jonathan Zapp on the line with us. He's been with us for an hour and a half or so, and we're thrilled to have him. You can find information about John on the web at Zapp Oracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zapporacle.com. He has a new book that's coming out sometime soon. Maybe we'll talk about that toward the end of the program. <coughs> It's called Parallel Journeys. He's been working on it for most of his adult life, and I can't wait uh, to have a chance to read it. Anyway, uh, John, hi. Thanks uh, for sticking around. Thank you. All right. So um, I mentioned before the break that I wanted to talk about phenomenology. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about uh, something that we're calling rabbit hole navigation. And basically, it's uh, uh, tools that we can find in our own world and our own lives to help us navigate strange, unusual, unknown situations and experiences. And John's got a whole list of tools in his tool bag. We've talked about a couple of them, liminality being one that we just talked about. We've got another one now that's called phenomenology. And John, I think most people are familiar with the word phenomenon. Uh, there was a movie made that, and I think people have just heard it. You know, it just means sort of an event that occurs in the world. But phenomenology is one that might be a little bit more confusing. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. And uh, by the way, it's, it's one of these things where I was something before I knew the name of it, just like I was a chaos magician before I ever heard the term. Once I did, I realized, well, well, that... That just explains in its basic outline something I've been doing all my life and, 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 and it uses the same principles that, that, you know, that I use where, where you don't follow a tradition to create a magic ritual but just make one up spontaneously yourself. So um, I've actually read, I've never even read a, a Wikipedia article on phenomenology. I read a little bit about it you know, here and there like in a um, wonderful book by Jeffrey Kripal and Whitley Strieber called Supernatural. Mm, mm-hmm. And, um, but the, so I, you know, I'm, I'm confessing my ignorance of any subtleties or nuances in the whole field of phenomenology about which there is, you know, a, a huge literature that I have not read. However, um, I think I've got to very, uh, make very good use of the basic concept. And, and it, you know, Edmund Herschel is a major figure in the field, a German philosopher in the field of, um, phenomenology, but it really goes back to Immanuel Kant. Hmm. And Immanuel Kant drew a distinction between the phenomenon 
Um, that's what we experience. And the noumena, which is what is really there. Mm, yes. And um, <clears throat> we, we only experience phenomena. So the most classic example that I use is, you know, right now I'm, I'm looking around my study and everything looks very real, though it's a very surreal study. Um, but basically, <clears throat> what I'm seeing is a phenomenon. I'm seeing the various lights in the room reflecting off the topography of various objects. And the, the, that reflected light is sending photons, an image, um, through the simple convex lens of my cornea. And so now it's, 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 it's arriving upside down on the back of my retina because right. a simple convex lens will turn things upside down. Right, right. And, and my retina is basically like a digital sensor, except that it has a hole in the middle where there are no photoreceptors. That's where the optic nerve is there. My brain will just fill that in with what it thinks should be there. Right, yeah. It's also going to turn that image right side up. It's going to miss all these wavelengths. It's subject to optical illusions. It takes a significant fraction of a second for it to, to do all that. Um, so therefore, what I'm, the phenomenon I'm experiencing is a neurological reconstruction a very imperfect one of a, of a past event because the you know the, mm-hmm. the time the object is is in living in real time but the reconstruction is happening you know a half a second later or whatever yeah posterior to that right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so um so all we're ever experiencing is phenomenon and and then we they, they, they give us clues about what the noumena or what's really behind that phenomenon. And even, you know, as much as it looks like the cup in front of me looks very physically real and like I'm really seeing it, but, you know, it's mostly empty space, as we discussed. It's, yeah, with, you know, the, with the, with with the monkey and the banana, so same thing. Those. Right. It's really an icon. It's a fitness payoff because... By, by seeing it as a cup, instead of as mostly empty space, I'm able to pick it up and have a drink and so forth. So, um, so when we relate to, so we're drawing a distinction between the phenomena and the noumena um, becomes especially important is when we're dealing with ambiguous, liminal, rabbit hole, paranormal experiences. And so um, when I am relating to somebody, to an entity that presents as a deceased friend of mine, um, you know, I relate to the phenomenon on its own terms. He prefers that I think of him as having continuity with the the historic person that I knew who's, you know, been dead for several years. Um, However... Um, I realize that I can't presume that I know for sure what the noumena is because, uh, you know, I have a, if you know somebody really well, you have a holographic memory of them. We know that the human psyche is capable of splitting off into other psyches, like in, you know, what used to be called multiple personality disorder, and now they call it disassociative identity disorder. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, or literary characters that you write that, that take on a life of their own and often do things you don't expect. So um, the, the, the noumena um, could be my deceased friend. It could be a subpersonality. Um, I can't be entirely sure, even though there are daily paranormal phenomena related to this, because people often naively assume that if something paranormal happens, oh, well, then that proves that the noumena is what they think the noumena is. Mm-hmm. So, for example, <clears throat> if my, my deceased friend um, uh, were to tell me, okay, you keep doubting whether I'm really, you know, uh, a subpersonality or have 
continuity with the, the, the person that you once knew who, who died several years ago. Um, take out a coin. I want you to flip it 12 times. And I predict that it's going to land on tails each of the 12 times. And so if that happens, you'll know it's really me. Mm. Now, let's say I do the experiment and the coin lands 12 times in a row, tails. Now, that indicates something probably paranormal happened because statistically that's so unlikely. Did that mean, did that prove that my friend has continuity with the person that I once knew and is a surviving soul? No, because there are many other obvious paranormal explanations that could also account for it. Maybe out of a, a, a desire for wish fulfillment, I accessed some telekinetic power I didn't know I had and manipulated the coin toss. Maybe I had short-term clairvoyance, because this is, we have the strongest evidence in paranormal research for short-term clairvoyance, and there's a whole field of paranormal research called decision augmentation theory. I may have somehow known the exact moment where conditions were just right to get a improbable coin toss like that and fabricated this, you know, um, exchange with, with that, you know, this other entity that's really a subpersonality to, you know, have the have this so-called demonstration happen. I can't, I can't entirely, you know, distinguish the noumena from the phenomenon and be completely sure. So the mark of the mature mind is the ability to tolerate ambiguity. Jung once said that ambiguity is mm. the way of life. Mm. Um, by comparison, um, shortly, you know, before the Iraq war, um, the disastrous one, George W. Bush said, you're either with us or you're against us. And if you listen to Donald Trump and you listen to other people that, you know, create a lot of trouble, they're often completely, they have no, no room for nuance right, right. at all. Everything's completely unambiguous, according to them, and, and, and not complex. It's black and white. And so um, the ability to tolerate ambiguity, that's another one of my oracle cards, um, is the sign of the mature mind. And then this can segue into skepticism, if you want. Yes, absolutely. That's a, a big chunk of, of that first video, at least. You, you devote a significant amount of time to skepticism. I think it's, I think it's worthy. I think we should do that as well. Okay. So um, the people who call themselves skeptics, like Michael Sharma and James Randi, who are the opposite of skeptics, um, they're debunkers, they're true believers in a negative. Um, the skeptics were a group of Greek philosophers, and their philosophy was called skepticism. And, and, and there's a Greek word, skepsis, I think, that just means to investigate. Yeah, I think, and, I think a lot of people wouldn't realize, and I mean, it's always so interesting to see where words come from for me. Right. And the fact that this was an, an, an actual sort of philosophical practice, I think, is news to people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm grateful to um, Raymond Moody, you know, who, who broke open the field of near-death experience yeah. research. Yeah, yeah, He was not just an MD and a psychiatrist, but also was a professor of logic and Greek philosophy. And um, so, you know... Uh, he, he pointed out, for example, that you'd have these people say, I'm a skeptic about near-death experience. I think it's just an oxygen-starved rain. Well, notice that's the exact opposite of skepticism. Well, I, maybe I didn't define skepticism first. <laughs> skepticism means to investigate, and the, the idea that this Greek philosophers had was to avoid reaching conclusions, because once you reach a conclusion, and we now have confirmed this statistically with cognitive psychology and confirmation bias, mm -hmm, once you mm -hmm. reach a conclusion, 
your ability to investigate goes way down. Yep, right out the window. Um, right, exactly. Um, they realized, um, and it's been proven long since then, that, that your ability to think and your ability to observe um, deteriorate once you have fixed conclusions. So um, the idea of being a skeptic is to avoid premature closure, to not assume you've reached the noumena, and to be a, more of a phenomenologist and, and, and accept the ambiguity of things and not arrive at fixed conclusions mm. and, you know, becoming an ideologue or, you know, an absolutist or something, something like that, a, dogma, a, dog, a dogmatist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, the people who call themselves skeptics are opposites of skeptics. They assume that certain paranormal things can happen. And then they do, you know, science's obligation to investigate the unexplained. Well, they just explain away the uninvestigated, right. you know, often things that they know very little about. And But skepsis means to investigate. But they refuse to investigate. Mm. And sometimes this is literally the case. So, for example, I talk about in the videos uh, the origins of the skeptical outfit called Psycop. Oh my gosh! Um, you know, related to you know James Randi, yes. who's a well-known member and stuff like that, and they're a debunking outfit. And when the organization started, um, a member of uh, of the organization had written some newspaper editorial denouncing horoscopes in newspapers. And we know that you know, even from the point of view of people who believe in astrology, newspaper horoscopes are pretty cheesy and. But, but in, in any case, um, except for the free will astrology column of my f- great friend Rob Brezhny. Yeah, Rob does but, a great um, job. Yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. But even he says, and I really like this about him, he says, I only believe in astrology 80%. Mm-hmm. See, that's very wise. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but in any case, you know, he wanted um, newspaper, felt newspapers should, um, you know, uh, have a warning label that, you know, astrology may be harmful to your health and, you know, this kind of thing. It was just assumed that it was complete nonsense and it doesn't really have any ready logical explanation, a causal explanation of why it should be true. Um, so they decided, uh, so some astrologer challenged them and they were able to come up with a, an, um, an experiment or an analysis of data to, to see if astrology were true because the astrologer said, well, I predict that if you were to look at, you know, professional athletes that you would find that they, that, you know, Mars would feature more prominently in their charts than the average person. Hmm. And so this was something that they could easily test statistically, not that easily, but they could yeah, test it statistically yeah. by looking at birth dates and, you know, who, who are the, you know, the, the most successful baseball players or whatever. When they crunched the numbers, um, the Psycop folks were very dismayed to find that uh, the data actually supported astrology. Mm-hmm. And they decided to refuse to publish the information. <laughs> right. And there was a lot of, you know, even some people in the organization thought that was, you know, unethical and so forth. Um, and But then they, you know, people that were on the board warned them that, you know, they better stop doing research because if they did research, um, they, they may come up with results that be uncongenial to the so-called, air quotes, skepticism. Mm. That was the point of the whole organization. So they had it written into their constitution that they would never again do research. <laughs> they would never again investigate. The opposite of the skepticism. You know, yeah. skepticism means to investigate. Uh, what a world. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, let, let's talk about some more some more examples because there's a bunch of them, and I think I think this really d- does deserve some time because we're, we're surrounded by by un, un unrealistic skepticism, untrue skepticism. Well, yeah, I mean, one one example, uh, this was a little confrontation I had with, with Michael Shermer, who's a very um, well-spoken but very smug um, skeptic. And he, he's, he, there was, he was a little public presentation that he gave that I was present for. Mm-hmm. And he starts out by saying, what motivates people to believe irrational things? You know, in this very smug way of him, right. because of course he's not motivated, you know, to believe irrational things, right, because right. you know he's a skeptic, so he's objective. And so, you know, I stopped him at one point and said, like, well, what about your motivations? Your whole income, your social identity, your career, everything is based on um, re- requires you to re- maintain the stance of being yeah. a skeptic. Yeah, he's got a whole. You know, there's that a powerful a motivation on your you know, mm-hmm. view of the world. And so, so Jung um, derided this kind of assumption of objectivity that people will have who call themselves skeptics or who have a scientific background. And often the skeptics don't even have much of a scientific background, like James Randi was a stage magician, and I forget what Michael Shermer was. <clears throat> but um, they just sort of assume that their mind is like this photographic apparatus that's just seeing what's really there and making these, you know, objective analyses. But that is the most um, naive position, you know, position you could possibly have. It, it, it completely overlooks everything we know about human psychology, where we're just riddled with blind spots and prejudices and, and so forth. So um, th- these people who, who claim objectivity, like another comic contemptible example is the philosopher Ayn Rand who had a philosophy called objectivism Mm -hmm. and she would kind of take on the stance and there would be other pretentious followers of her like Paul Ryan you know who would you know a lot of the people who like Ayn Rand seem to also have like very (laughs) inferior minds or something and but who just have this smug sense of superiority you know, which comes across in books like Atlas Shrugged that she wrote, you know, yeah. um, where, where, you know, you're this just, you're this objective thinker that's, you know, above the average person and, you know, you, know, you are objective. And meanwhile, in her own personal life was just, you know, a comic opera of like, you know, mm. subjectivities mm-hmm. and, and, and not being objective at all. Her own life was a complete contradiction of her philosophy. And so, um, so, so people who, uh, and, and often there's a sort of overlap between skeptics and militant atheists, hmm. um, where there's this sort of, uh, where they have like some kind of prideful assumption of superiority, even while at the same time saying things that would make, make human life and human consciousness seem completely insignificant, um, if I forget which one of the, the, the British atheists said, you know, um, we're no more significant than mold growing on a shower curtain. <laughs> but but he also kind of said it with this superior attitude, like he was mold of a far higher order than, <laughs> than all these fools who don't realize right. that we're that you know we're we're just mold growing on a shower curtain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, 
but you hear different variations of this, you know, and mm. I talk about this it even comes up in my fantasy novel, Parallel Journeys, where people will say like the sheer randomness of things, you know, mm. and the, but then the examples they use to illustrate that completely indicate something completely different. Like they'll be like, if I hadn't been standing on that street corner at that moment, I wouldn't have met such and such or the car wouldn't have hit me. But meanwhile, um, what they just described doesn't seem random at all. A highly specific thing happened um, as compared to all the other things that could have happened. And they just assume that, that, um, you know, that it was just a a random distribution between that and all the other possibilities. Hmm. And, um, but I've heard one systems theorist say that um, the assumption that anything could be random um, may be the worst mistake that science ever made, Hmm. you know, because in order for there, as he explained it, in order for something to be random, the system can't have a memory. Right. And we know that everything remembers whether it was heads or tails last time that would invalidate the coin toss. Right. Mm -hmm. But apparently the system always has a memory. Yeah. In fact, if you remember, there was this whole thing called the black hole wars. It was a, a, a physicist with my exact ethnic background, another Jew from the Bronx. His name was Leonard Suskind, <laughs> went to a lecture about 25 years ago. He was amazing. Stephen John. Hawking. He was an amazing was guy. Suskind, I'm familiar with some of his work. Fantastic. Oh, really? Yeah. Are you? Yeah. He, 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 I, I can just relate to him very ethnically. Mm. He's from the same background, but I don't know much about him, but he, he looks very familiar in that way that, you know, all Ashkenazi Jews are no more than 12 cousins or something, apparently. Right. Well, descended from just 100 mothers, apparently. But anyway, um, he went to a lecture, and Stephen Hawking said something that, like, disturbed him to the core of his being, um, because Stephen Hawking said that in a black hole, even information is destroyed. And somehow, um, that filled Leonard Susskind with a feeling of wrongness. Mm-hmm. And he set about, he, he set up a bet, I think it was a bottle of wine, between himself and Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. He believed that information would be conserved even in a black hole. Yeah, yeah. And then he was able to prove that. Yes. And Stephen Hawking paid up the bet. Yeah, I remember. And I agree with Susskind. I, th- I think that, um, that everything is predicated by something that happened before it. So the universe does sort of have a memory in a weird way. Uh, uh, it's like it's like a big recording or something. Um, and in fact, I'd like to ask you as a side note about a story that pops up every so often. And it came up again on on uh, in the forum of uh, part of my website recently. And that's the idea of the universe as simulation. Uh, I'm sure you've heard, you know, Michael Talbot started early on. He had the, the whole holographic universe idea. But this is more like uh, the universe and our lives and everything in it as a simulation as almost like some experiment that's being done by some uh something or some entity or some some other intelligence that's really controlled the whole thing and designed it well um so first of all this is this is really not a new idea because this is this is what the gnostics said hmm. was that and, right and it was it was gnosticism that inspired the uh the graphic novels that the movie The Matrix was based on. Tell people a little bit about Gnosticism if they're not familiar, please. Well, I mean, this was, you know, these were uh, both Christians and Jews, and Gnosis means inner knowing. Mm -hmm. Gnosis knowledge. And they believed that, you know, um, it was a mistake to worship an outside Messiah. 
because you had to discover the um, Christ consciousness within, like there's a Gnostic gospel of... of um, Thomas. Of, of, of Thomas or John, I forget, mm-hmm. um, that says, uh, where Jesus says, and the, these, these gospels are as old as anything in the New Testament. Um, they were just edited out, you know, yes. at the Council of Nicaea or something. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Jesus says, if you drink from my mouth, I become you and you become me. So that's a very Gnostic idea. You don't worship an outside Savior. You know, the idea is to find your own inner knowing, not to have blind faith, but to discover knowledge from within. So Jung was a, was a Gnostic Christian, mm-hmm. and when they would ask him, you know, do you believe in God? He said, no, I, I know. Now, I don't even use the word God, but I'm just saying this is what, what Jung yes. described it as a Gnostic. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but the Gnostics believed that there were uh, deceptive beings called archons that had basically created a matrix. You know, this is like the idea of Maya and Buddhism, mm-hmm. and um, that we were living in that matrix, Matrix just means mother. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they called the archons the masters of deception. And they felt that, you know, a lot of this was discovered just at the end of World War II when, it, when a, um, a Bedouin peasant by the name of Muhammad Ali um, discovered a bunch of scrolls in, in the back of a cave. Yeah, Kumar. Brought them home. His mother just thought they were nothing and she used some of them as kindling apparently but these these were the dead sea scrolls and so yes. or the nagamati library rather yeah. you know where they discovered um a lot of a whole lot of gnostic texts that you know dated back to you know first century ad and this kind of thing hmm. anyway <clears throat> which is interesting because we had just been through a very gnostic experience because um, hitler it's believed may have had a vision of the demiurge where you know that which is like the head of the archons mm. you know he seems like a very archon possessed individual boy something got in the gnostic him. point of view <laughs> hmm? yeah i said something got into him that's for sure definitely and um it was a very surreal thing i mean if you think about the idea of this unemployed artist you know reversing an astrological symbol i mean it's it's a very, it seems like an over-the-top sci-fi plot, except it actually happened. Well, yeah, I mean, and, yeah, I mean, tales of master races and, and rockets raining down over Europe. I mean, this was all sci-fi back then. Right, and a lot of it was actually inspired by a 19th century fantasy novel um, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton called The Coming Race, hmm. where they had the vril, the, the, hmm. the, this, you know... Yeah master race that lived underground and that's where and and so the nazis had these hollow earthers they took this fantasy novel it sounded so good to them they just they just read it as if it were literally true and um but in any case um so we have the idea of the simulation but just to kind of like uh connect it with the previous thing we were talking about with the system having a memory from a phenomenological point of view Mm -hmm a real demonstration of the system having an uncanny perfect memory as if we were all happening in a big master computer that retained a memory of every event like some you know big mainframe might of every video game played on the platform mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> when people have near-death experiences the most classic feature is the life review and in the life review they're able to access information that couldn't be explained by ordinary memory. Like, hmm. for example, they may enter, re-experience the scene, but be aware of what everyone else was thinking and feeling. Also, as was reported by Dr. Kenneth Ring, who was Professor Emeritus at the University of Connecticut 
in a book that he co-wrote with somebody else. I forget her name, but um, it was called Mindsight. They documented all these cases of people who were congenitally blind since birth hmm. and yet who had highly visual and comprehended um, the, the visual information was comprehended near-death experiences. Huh. Because, you know, from a neurological point of view, if you're congenitally blind since birth, even if through some surgery or something they're able to restore your eyesight, you can't even make sense of the information past a certain developmental age. Mm -hmm. Your brain just hasn't learned how to process that. Yeah, it doesn't know the but, pattern but they recognition. Would, they would oh. have a near-death experience and be able to say, oh, that's what grandma looked like. Huh. And then they would be able to report that and other relatives would confirm the ver you know, veracity of that description. So this suggests that there is a memory of everything that happens in your life. I mean, we already know that it doesn't look like memory is stored in the brain anyway. Mm -hmm. because And the whole position of neurological materialism looks like a failure. Yeah, I agree. But, um, but you know, it, it seems like the system has more memory than it, even if all your senses were recording every single thing on a perfect, you know, thumb drive, that you know, or something like that. It, it seems to have more it seems like the whole whole processing power of the universe, you know, this is sometimes called the Akashic record, mm. has this complete memory. Mm -hmm. So you can look at that and say, like, wow, well, that sounds like a, you know, like a everything is happening inside a computer system. So then there there have been people, you know, people like the philosopher Nick um, Swedish Mangrove or something like that. Mm -hmm. I can't think of it. Bob Bosk. Bostrick or something. Okay. He's the one who's, who, who, who really started getting the field taken seriously when he started publishing articles about the simulation hypothesis, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. about 10, 15 years ago. And they even have been doing experiments. I don't know what the results of them were, but there was something that they were going to test on the subatomic level um, because there was a certain expected granularity that the universe would have, the physical universe would have, if it weren't simulation hmm. and certain other things like some some of the simulation theorists say that the reason why we have a speed of light is that if you could travel faster than the speed of light you would need infinite computing power hmm. to stay on top of that i don't know where that stands but hmm. from my perspective and this comes up in a conversation between characters in parallel journeys <clears throat> it really doesn't matter what the phys what the physical substrate of our existence is you know we 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 seem to be agents that have sentience and a certain degree of free will and whether we're made of quarks or we're made of zeros and ones in an alien quantum computer or or whatever um anything that exists is real so so simulation may end up not being any more it really may be kind of like a nonsensical distinction, hmm. you know, especially if you read a book like, you know, um, The Case Against Reality. Um, and, you know, but he, but in The Case Against Reality also talks about problems with various of the simulation theories and versions of it and why they would not actually work very well if you really think them through. Hmm. So it's... <clears throat> um, you know, I, I, I think that you don't need uh, a simulation hypothesis of a sort that you're being run in a computer. Um, it may be that the physical, naturally occurring, in quotes, universe mm -hmm. 
is creating a simulation. Right, that's, that's the, the idea of the case against reality. That, Very that interesting. physical reality is a simulation, a mm-hmm. construct like the icons on a desktop, mm-hmm. created by consciousness. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. We John. may be living in the simulation <laughs> and the creators of it at the same time. Oh my gosh. All right, we are at the top of the hour here, so we're going to have to take another quick break. Um, We'll have about 15 or 20 when we come back, and I'd like to touch on the collective unconscious again. You mentioned it uh, a little bit ago, and I've got a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you about that, okay? Okay, sure. All right, we'll be back, folks, in just a few minutes. I've got Jonathan Zapp with me on the line tonight. So glad to have been able to... Uh, have a chance to talk with John tonight. He'll be with us for another half an hour or so. And you can find him on the web at Zap Oracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, ZapOracle.com. Connect there from my site as well. Super cool website with a bunch of information on there. And uh, yeah, check him out. And we'll be back with John in just a few minutes. Meanwhile, we will hear one quickly uh, from uh from skin shape this one is called life as one no i think i'm going to finish the show with that one this one's called breathe it's a little bit shorter back in about three minutes with jonathan zapp you're listening to radio orbit on kopn columbia
right, super cool stuff from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Skin Shape. Digging this stuff. I hope you're liking it too. And you listen to it here on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. We're streaming on the web at kopn.org every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2. Actually, it's only till 1.30 these days because we were, we've got uh, new COVID restricted hours here at the radio station. So uh, we will get back to our guest this evening. His name is Jonathan Zapp, and I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk with John. He's been with us since about 11.15, and uh, we're going on two hours now, and we could probably do this all night if we had enough time, John. Well, I'd probably run out of energy, but um, sometime would be great. Well, I know you're. An, I know you're an, I'm early, an early morning person. You're an so. early morning person, and and we've only got we've only got another twenty minutes anyway. But I will tell the listeners that we are going to come back and do this again next week. We're going to have Jonathan back with us next week uh, to continue this conversation because there's quite a bit more to uh, to talk about, don't you think, John? Absolutely, infinite. Uh, all right, cool. So before we get back to our conversation about Carl Jung and the collective unconscious, I wanted to tell you that a listener sent me a note over the break there and said, Mike, did you know that DMT was originally described as a drug called telepathine? Some guy in 1905 named it because his characterization of ayahuasca visions were telepathic. Would this be considered a phenomenological description? <laughs> I, I think yes, right? In other words, they, they described it phenomenologically and then found out what it really was. Well, I actually talk about um, um, ayahuasca being called telepathy in my book, I believe. Um, and I got it from Terrence McKenna, of course, um, who... Um, shared that anecdote about it, that, that early anthropologists called it that, because people um, in ayahuasca circles would have a consensual visual telepathic experience, huh. where the ayahuasca square would, would sing songs, but they would have a, um, <clears throat> um, a, a synesthetic experience. You know, a shared, shared when you vision really or something. convert one sense to another. Mm. So they, they, would, they would see it as like a visual symphony, and apparently, um, after the circle ended, people who attended were able to, uh, you know, just like people who had seen the same movie, were able to describe, you know, when the Iowa Square, I was saying that, you know, part where it created that, those like magenta-colored mountains with the golden stars hmm. twinkling on the, you know, summit and stuff like that. You know, I thought that was very dramatic. And other people had seen the same thing, hmm. supposedly. Huh. Um, <clears throat> um, so... Uh, some sub substances are boundary dissolving, and human beings have quite a bit of telepathy going on, even without any substances. And so uh, it seems entirely probable that, you know, something that this is boundary dissolving as ayahuasca, especially if, if it's done in like, you know, these kind of, in the kind of environment where it's dark and like mm. everybody's in a circle and so forth, it, mm -hmm. it, it gives itself to the boundary dissolving telepathy, I think. Very interesting. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you, uh, are definitely someone who I would go to if I wanted to talk to someone about Carl Jung. And I had, uh, <laughs> interestingly, my, my introduction to Jung was a, was a UFO book. It was, uh, the, the, 
uh, flying saucer is a, a modern phenomenon of things seen in the sky or modern mythology. Like a modern I've, myth of things seen in the sky, oh, right? Yes, okay. And because I've been interested in the flying saucer uh, phenomenon since I was just a little kid. And, I, and I never really found an, an, an explanation that, uh, that, that felt right, that seemed like they were getting it. And I think Jung came closer than anybody else. And I think maybe... Uh, uh, Jacques Vallée, I think, sort of, sort of took took the ball from 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 that uh, from that mm-hmm. perspective. But anyway, could you talk about the collective unconscious and and the super ego and that type of thing? Because because I th- I still think that that's a remarkable phenomenon if it is really in fact occurring. Okay, and and maybe in some show we did several years ago or something, I might have told the same story. But you know, it's actually that book that Jung wrote on UFOs that was my like synchronistic encounter with with Jung in 1978 um, but in, in, just in case I didn't tell the story well if you um, did it's been long enough and I want to hear right, it again exactly so. anyway um, <clears throat> um, I, I was set out to write a philosophy honors paper that the chairman of the philosophy department was kind enough to let me go down rabbit holes, but you know, <laughs> do some rigorous research. And, and I decided in my senior year of college, when I was 20 in 1978, that I was going to, wanted to investigate why certain sci-fi stories, um, such as a British 1960 black and white movie called Village of the Damned, mm. had an effect on me. Um, I didn't know anything about the collective unconscious at the time, like a religious vision. I just like saw this movie on a, you know, in, on an afternoon, you know, it wasn't even nighttime with my dad. And it just, you know, uh, was like a religious vision. And, um, and so my, and I also had that experience of like reading the science fiction novel by Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End. Yeah. We've, we've, yeah. About. We've talked about that. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> So my mom was a psychologist, as I mentioned. Um, I had no idea where to begin to investigate that. She said, well, you should really look into this guy, Carl Jung, and his theory of the collective unconscious and the archetypes. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, that's some kind of lead. So I go up to the, you know, collected edition, you know, these impressive black volumes of Princeton Bollingen, you know, collected works right. on the second floor of the college library. Awesome. But I mean, part of me was probably like, oh, my mom told me to do this. You know, this guy grew up in the 19th century. Yeah, he'll know Swiss, nothing. Son of a minister. Like, you know, what's he going to tell this weird Jewish kid from the Bronx about his sci-fi obsessions? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I look through the index volume and immediately I see, oh, there's a whole book on UFOs because that was, you know, um, that, that's the beginning of both Childhood's End and Village of the Damned. And I was, yeah, like you, yeah. you know, fascinated with them. They were numinous, you know, mm-hmm. um, as Jung would say, from the earliest age. So I, I go to that book and I start flipping through that. And then I see at the end of the book, it's like he couldn't let go of the subject. At the end of the book, there's like an afterword. Mm-hmm. And then like after <laughs> the afterword, there's like a second afterword. <laughs> right. And then after the second afterword, there's a supplement. And then when I start reading the supplement, my, my, my jaw, you know, drops open because the supplement is a study of a British science fiction novel called The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham. Well, that's the novel that the movie Village of the Damned is based on. Mm, mm. So here's my first encounter with Jung, and he might as well have been like a holographic wizard stepping out of the bookcase, Amazing. holding a torch and saying like, yeah, I was looking at that one too. Amazing. And he seemed to have figured out a lot of the same things that I was thinking along similar lines, but he, where he ends the supplement, and this is the end of the whole book, he said, thus the, the negative ending of the book 
gives reason for doubt. It was like a note of complete ambiguity, which was delightful. We were just talking about ambiguity. You yeah. Know? He, yeah, you got to live with it. leaves it with doubt and like, you know, why, why did, what is the negative ending about? <clears throat> well, I was able to, because Jung died in 1961, I was able to observe more of the phenomenon. I was also able to stand on his shoulders and benefit from all the work he did, you know, mm-hmm. discovering the collective unconscious and the archetypes. And so I know exactly what the negative ending of the book is. And basically it is that, you know, um, when, when the ego views the singularity archetype, it's viewed very negatively and apocalyptically. Mm. When it's viewed from the what Jung would call the self, the totality of all the psychic structures, a trans-temporal perspective, it's seen as a transcendent evolutionary event. Mm. But in childhood's end, everything is seen from the point of view of the doctor, who's like the ego, and um, who um, views it all negatively and, you know, mm-hmm. tries to defeat the psychic children by imagining a wall in his mind. That's an image of, like, psychic repression. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but you, I describe all that in my book. But in any s- case, uh, let, let's see, we were talking about, you, 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 you asked me about, I know you were gonna, we were going to talk about the collective unconscious, but you asked me about Jung and... Well, and uh, the idea that the, the saucer could, and, and that people's experiences were actually generated by something in other words they were real experiences but they were right. but they were somehow generated by a, a, a larger uh, you know the super conscious or the or the super ego the the I, I, I don't know uh, right well I mean this this becomes I mean this is definitely seems like one of the possibilities with the with the UFO phenomenon because they're very psychoid mm. um, they they um, you know, Jung noted that they reflected radar, but he wondered if they might be psychoid objects mm-hmm. because, you know, they, they can um, change shape and merge with one another. They may be seen differently by different observers. So they seem, as, as Jacques Vallée, um, and you ex- pick the, you know, the, the highest person after Jung to observe the phenomenon, um, <clears throat> up there with, you know, Jeffrey Kripal and Whitley Freeburn and just a few other folks who, who 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 don't come to premature conclusions. Yes, yes. Um, you know, uh, Jung wondered aloud if they might not be exteriorizations of the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> One thing that would seem to support that is a. Uh, a ufology book I've never read, but I've heard about it. Um, that that is a very rare one, but that um, uh, studied all the changes in the UFO abduction, the close encounter reports, where people would have encounters with the beings. And what the author of this book was able to show is that every new twist and turn in the literature of abduction experience or close encounter experience was always preceded by a science fiction story Hmm. that had the same element and that predated the actual phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Even if the science fiction story were in some completely obscure sci-fi magazine or something mm-hmm. that the experiencer would almost certainly never have read. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's almost as if the collective unconscious were now primed um, with that particular, you know, uh, fantastical occurrence mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. it to occur. Um, and it, um, uh, so a cattle mutilation researcher, uh, David Perkins, I once met, through late, through late Terrence McKenna, um, talked about the self-reflective aspect of the phenomenon as he observed it. Um, and where, for example, there was a Colin, I think his name is first name, I forget his last name, um, who is a, a British uh, crop circle hmm. researcher. Colin, he had a Colin dream Anderson, of, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. He had a dream about a crop circle, a particular 
formation, you know, design. And then when he woke up from the dream, he got a phone call, and that exact crop circle had appeared. <laughs> um, now, whether that was his psyche generating it, or he had some kind of like remote viewing of it, or you know, right. who knows right. what. Right. But um, <clears throat> but the the uh, inner inner and outer become very blurred with with a lot of these paranormal phenomenon where. Um, it's, you know, uh, what, what a scientist told Jacques Vallée is if we wanted one true thing that we could say about the visitors or whatever you want to call them, is that they are reality projectors, that they are able to appear in our consciousness in any way that they want to. Hmm. And he said it's, it's sort of like Plato's cave. Um, you know, if you're watching a movie you can be so distracted by all the fantastical images going across the screen. But if you really want to know what's going on, you kind of have to turn around and look back at the projector. Mm. And so um, it seems like with many ufological phenomenon, it seems like there is a projector that is creating, um, that, that can make things appear any mm. way they want to. Mm. Mm-hmm. And something else that seems to be a reality projector in this way are spirits, are deceased human beings um, who, who can come back and appear in a different form, you know, like a shapeshifter idea. You know, John, and, and l- let me tell people that this is still rabbit hole stuff, certainly. Uh, so we haven't, right. we haven't gone off topic, but uh, uh, flying saucers and, uh, uh, and near-death experiences are certainly rabbit holes. So. Absolutely. And um, so Terrence McKenna um, produ- produced a... Uh, um, he was very influenced by Jung's ideas about ufology. Yeah, he, he was. He produced a video about that. And and, and he pointed out something that, you know, that, that uh, Whitley and Ann Streber basically arrived at the same conclusion. You know, um, Terrence said, like, well, if there, were, if there were these beings that have psyches, they usually have a hominid form, and they seem very interested in manipulating human psychology. He said by the principle of logic called Occam's razor, where you don't multiply hypotheses without necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, the simplest explanation, if you were going to look for an ecology of souls, would be that they are us. And they could be us as living beings exteriorizing our collective psyches or individual psyches, but they could also be dead people, mm-hmm. because we don't know what happens to the human life cycle, unless we're materialists and think we know, mm-hmm. after death. Yeah. So after death, people may be in psychoid shape-shifting bodies and may take on um, the form of a glowing saucer or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> and so much of the literature that, that um, um, Whitley Strieber talks about and that Ann Strieber, who read tens and maybe even 100,000 letters that were sent to them after Whitley published the book Communion, and these were called the Public, some of the best ones were published in what was called the Communion Letters. Mm-hmm. And Strieber hired a secretary to go through them all. Mm-hmm. And there was incredible how many of the ufological experiences overlapped with deceased persons. Really? Like there'd be a bunch of gray aliens standing around a woman, but one of them she recognized was her deceased mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I even had a dream related to this. So the, so the overlap between the dead and the visitors um, is... Uh, quite profound. Of interest, and, and yeah. According to Terrence McKenna, when he would show pictures of gray aliens to Amazonian shamans, they would be like, oh, the ancestors. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, we have got time for one more sort of uh, uh, cliffhanger question, but uh, I'll let you give a quick answer, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more next week. But we talked a lot tonight about phenomenology and the way things appear uh, as opposed to the way that they really are. 
And the one word that uh, you've used a few times is the word numinous, and it's a word that Carl Jung used as well. I guess my question is, can it be experienced? Can the numinous be felt and experienced? Well, sure. I mean, it, and it, it, it is an experience. You know, numinous, something is numinous. Numin means spirit. So something is numinous sort of lights up with an uncanny significance. And um, like a classic numinous experience is if you see somebody who's dazzlingly beautiful in a physically attractive way, you know, they're, they're, they're numinous, like, you know, the, mm-hmm. like Botticelli's Venus, you know, mm-hmm. stepping out of a clamshell kind of thing. <laughs> so that's the most, and that's often the most deceptive of numinous experiences mm. is the, the, the dazzlingly beautiful person. Yeah, because the they give one. them a halo effect and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, all kinds of other things for many people, flying saucers are a very numinous subject. And so uh, I have a, my, my whole philosophy of creativity and relating to the creative muse is just called the path of the numinous. It's also people can watch it. It's a YouTube. Yes. So numinous can only be experienced because it is a, it is a perceptual phenomenon. Um, what is numinous to me, to somebody of a different sexual orientation or with a different set of obsessions might be the most dull and boring thing in the, in the world. Mm, um, like a good example is you know, a, a numinous experience we've all had is, and a participation mystique experience we've all had, is to watch, think of the best movie you've ever watched where you're just enraptured by it, you mm-hmm. know, whatever it is, Avatar or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, I have a very nice home theater in the basement and go down and watch these numinous movies. I also exercise down there. But sometimes um, the, our dog named Link will, will be down there when we're all watching a movie. He's not having a numinous experience at all. He's just in a room hanging out with a bunch of people on a sofa, and there's a lot of like flickering lights and like loud noises going on that he just doesn't pay any attention to because they don't have any. They're not numinous for him at all. What's mm-hmm. numinous is you know the, the, the love connection he feels with particular people on the sofa. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you you so the, to have a numinous experience implies a perceiver recipient um, who is making that numinous connection and often something's numinous because we're projecting part of ourselves onto it like when we see you know a dazzlingly beautiful person we may project onto them our own soul that we have partly disowned and that's why people will falsely think when they see some stunningly beautiful person like oh that's my soulmate (laughs) we were meant to be together Sometimes right. that in some rare case that could be true, but obviously right. it's just a projection right. and that may turn you into a stalker, or, you know, give you very unrealistic expectations mm. of how much the, who that other person is or how much interested they might be in you. Right, right. Very interesting. All right, Mr. Jonathan Zapp, that's a good place for us to say uh, toodaloo for this evening at least. And uh, I'm real excited to come back and continue our conversation next week. Uh, for all of you out there, if you haven't joined us uh for the uh, early part of the show, I've been talking with Jonathan Zapp uh, since about 11.15 or so. And we're going to come back and do it again next week. We're talking about tools for rabbit hole navigation. And that's sort of code for how to get through this crazy life. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you tonight, John. And we'll come back and do it Likewise. again. Yes. Yeah. We'll visit some more rabbit holes next uh, week. All right, cool. So uh, once again, on the web at zaporacle.com, your YouTube channel, um, which is super cool, and there's a bunch of the stuff that we've been talking about tonight that's available there. Um, that's just uh, Zap Oracle as well on YouTube? Right, yep. 
Okay. P-A-T-R-A-C-L-E. That's right. And uh, I'll make sure that I get all these links up on my site as well. And I'll put up the uh, the previous conversations that we've had too so people can link to those real easy without having to go search through the archives. But regardless, we will be back again next week with Jonathan Zapp. And until then, John, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care, Mike. Take care, man. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Okay. Uh, wow. Super interesting conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I sure did. We are going to uh, wrap it up and play one more from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Skin Shape. This is a song called Life as One. And uh, if nothing else, you can bet that's the truth. All right, stick around for Eric P's Sound Legacy coming at you. Get ready for some cool music action. And, well, it'll be about an hour. We're going to go automated for an hour to keep with our COVID uh, schedule. And then uh, Eric will be with you at about 2.30, and he'll take you till the morning hours, okay? All right, once again, uh, it's Mike, and you've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My website is www.mikehagan.com. The show is always streaming at kopn.org. Once again, thank you to my guest this evening, Jonathan Zapp. You can find him again at zapporacle.com. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you all next week. Be cool to yourselves, and uh, be cool to other people. Mm-hmm.